0: Ephesians. We're in chapter 5, and we're finishing out chapter 5. And we just happen to be, of course, on the husbands and wives passage. And we're going to be in verses 22 through 33. And since it's Valentine's Day, this is going to be... This is going to be great. This is going to be wonderful. Now, remember at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, the very first verse, it said uh, that we are to imitate God, to be an imitator. And so tonight, that's what we're talking about. We are imitators, and there's really two different ways that preachers can preach, or at least most will. And one of them is uh, telling you what you need to do, and then maybe referencing how That comes from God and how God um, has done that for us. But that's the secondary thing. The primary thing is you need to do this. Here's some commands. Do them. And we usually guilt each other, pressure each other into trying to fulfill them, but we know in and of our own strength we can't do it. Some people go their whole lives in church hearing those kinds of messages, and they say, I need to be better at this. I need to be better. I'm falling short here. We just can't fulfill all these commands. Or the second way is to um, point everyone to the fact that uh, Jesus is has done first what he asks us to do. In most cases, everything God asks you to do, he first did for us. And so that's how I'm going to preach this tonight, because I believe that's uh, the the more gospel-centered way. And when you find um, that the commands that you have were first fulfilled uh, in Christ, it changes the way that you view them, and it changes your heart towards them. And all of a sudden, uh, you don't have to be told or prompted Uh, by others to do these things, you just find that it comes natural as a response to seeing what God has first done for you. So we're going to be talking about imitation, and remember the word imitation means to mimic. When we think about that in our culture, it's usually not a good thing. When you think of uh, someone imitating someone else, we think of uh, someone mocking someone else, or you even think about it in, in the form of food. If someone told you, hey, come over to my house, I've got an amazing seafood dinner uh, planned for you. You're like, wow, this is going to be great. Lobster and uh, maybe some crab and these different things. If they laid out for you um, crab and then you said, oh, great, I'm going to dig in. And they said, well, it's imitation crab. How would you feel about that? Would you feel like that was a great imitation? Like what is imitation crab? I don't know if anyone actually knows. I mean, you think, well, there's crab and then there's imitation crab and it's a little bit rubbery. What is it? No, nobody knows. And we think of imitation in negative light. And the world particularly doesn't like imitation in the sense that it feels like you're losing your identity. I mean, how much time do people spend trying to be like other people? Well, I want to be, when I was in, growing up in the 90s, uh, I want to be like Mike. I want to be like Michael Jordan. We, we want to be like other people, and yet we hate the fact that uh, to be an imitator means you might lose your identity. And yet when we imitate God, as God told us to in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we find that we are who we were created and intended to be when we imitate him. We don't lose our identity. We find our identity. And that's really good news. That's really good news. You see, the world is obviously different than the church. The world values progress, sometimes above all things. And success in the Christian life. It is not about innovation, but imitation. You see, the world wants us to redefine marriage, redefine gender, redefine roles, redefine everything. But we find freedom in trusting the creator and who he defines his creation to be. And so, um... Tonight, as we walk through this passage, and you find that it is super countercultural, there's not going to be many amens as we're walking through some of this. Some of you are going to be very upset, uh, and some of you are going to be very, very upset. Those are probably the two reactions uh, for a lot of this. But you've got to understand it's unpopular because, in a postmodern culture that exalts and idolizes individuals, submission seems like oppression. And love, in this culture, it's watered down because it's a mile wide and an inch deep. And we say, well, I love my spouse. And in the next sentence, I love Wendy's french fries dipped in Frosties. And it's the same thing, right? No, it's not the same thing. Love is completely different than that. And so we learn uh, that the Bible redefines things for us when you grow up in a world that has defined them differently. And so we're going to see a love that comes from God. God is love but a love that Jesus has shown on the cross that blows us away. We're going to talk about that. And when we think about submission, we're not just going to talk about wives. We're not just going to talk about husbands. We're going to be talking about how Jesus has perfectly and always submitted to the Father. That changes everything. So the big idea tonight, keep this in mind, because we're going to spend a good chunk of time with this in mind. The big idea is what God tells us to do points to what God has already done. Our theology dictates our activity, but our activities should ultimately point the world to our theology. And so we're going to focus not just on husbands and wives, we're going to focus on Jesus and how he loves and how he submits, and it's going to change the way that you view your marriage. So let's jump on in. We're going to read these verses 22 through 33. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands. See, it didn't take very long. Some of you are already very upset. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So you see, all through this, husbands do this, wives do this, but this is how Jesus first did it for all of us. You can preach it two different ways. We're going to start with Jesus Verse 30, because we are members of his body. Therefore, so this is Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So your marriage ain't about you. Your marriage isn't about your spouse. Your marriage is ultimately reflecting Jesus. In his relationship with the church. If you don't understand that, you will, look at your, you will look at roles in marriage, and you will idolize some, the ones that you like, the ones that seem easier than others, and you will demonize the others, the ones that you don't want to do. You'll say, well, am I the one who has to submit? Or, well, I got to love and sacrifice like this. And it all points to what Jesus has done. Verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. All right, before we look at us, let's look at him. Five ways that Jesus submitted to the Father and loves the church. We're going to walk through these verses a little bit differently tonight. We're going to kind of jump back and forth as we play this out. Verse 23 said that Christ is the head. So number one, he is the head. He's the head. He's over this whole thing. Jesus is in charge. Now here's the thing. Jesus is exalted. Why? What does Jesus say about being exalted through the Gospels? He says, because he humbled himself, the Father's going to put everything under his feet. Philippians 2. The kenosis of Christ, this is the humility of Jesus, that being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he died a death, a horrible death, even a death on a cross, and therefore everything was put under his feet. Jesus is exalted, he's the head, he's in charge, but he submitted himself to be a person, and to be a lowly person who got beat, crucified, and killed. But then God said, that's what I'm looking for. The father knew this is the kind of, this is this is what, this is who I want in charge. He's the head. He's the head. You ever been in charge of something? If you're a boss, if you're in charge of a business, if you are in charge of employees, if you are in charge of anything, you know um, that you can sit and boast in your pride and say, wow, it's amazing to be at top um, But really what it means to be a good leader is to take responsibility. Jesus is in charge. This church, we say all the time, this is our church, this is our church. It's not really our church. Orion, you're you're a leader, you're a leader. Other pastors, you're leaders. Eh, We're at best under shepherds. It's Jesus' church. He's the one who built it. He's the one who sustains it, that nourishes it, that protects it, that does everything for it. It's Jesus' church. He's in charge. This is crucial because to be the head of something equals responsibility. Think about the cross. The cross demonstrates this in the fullness. Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin. He did not deserve death. He didn't commit the sins, and yet he took responsibility for this. is Men, listen up. He took responsibility for sins he did not commit. That's the cross. He's the head of his church. You see, the way that you see um, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the way you see Jesus interacting with the Father and the Spirit and with Jesus, and, and you see how all three persons interact with each other, one God, three persons. Uh, it's reflected in the way that the church leads, right? And that the pastors are under shepherds. We are uh, in-, in charge, but ultimately we are followers of Jesus, leaders of men, we are servants. We're here to um, not just have authority, but to use that authority for good, to bless and to serve and to wash the feet of the people. And then you see that that's reflected even more so in the home, right? I mean, what are the qualifications for a good pastor? The biblical qualifications are that he does these things in the home, (laughs) because if he doesn't do them in the home, how is he going to do them in the church? And so the home reflects the church. The church reflects Jesus. Jesus is the head. Number two, he's the Savior. So it says in verse 23 that he gave his body and is, the church is his body and is himself its Savior. Here's the thing about submission. Submission recognizes need. And this is one reason why the world hates submission. This is why submission sounds like slavery. It sounds like oppression to the world. Because it's saying, I'm going to be dependent on someone else. I'm going to lower myself and exalt someone else. Whether it be physically, their opinion, emotional, whatever it might be. I'm going to not have my way, but yield to your way. And Jesus submits to the Father. He says, not my will, but your will. See, we need someone. We need someone else. This is the gospel, isn't it? We need Christ. Our culture loves individuality. We love to be the hero of our own story, but the Bible has a a hero, and it's Jesus. And he submitted to the Father by loving us to death. Number three, he is the giver. It says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's Valentine's Day. Let me ask you a question. When you woke up and you realized that it is Valentine's Day, whether you're married or not, doesn't matter, but you thought about, wow, what does it mean, you know, that it's Valentine's Day? Did you think, was your first thought, wow, I, I want to bless someone else? I want to make their day. Or were you thinking, here's how I would like to be blessed? Here's how I would like someone to sweep me off my feet, or serve me, or give me my ideal Valentine's Day. Which one was it? More than likely, if you're human, you're probably thinking, oh, I hope something special today happens to me. Not many of us wake up thinking, how can we bless the other person before we think of our own needs? We're selfish. That's what happens, though, when you live in a culture of entitlement. Those of you who work in the school system, those of you who work with, well, anybody, (laughs) you know that we have a whole generation of entitled kids, and these kids are now adults. And these um, adults tend to think more about what they would like to receive than how they can give. It affects from the government on down, the way people view things is selfish. We're selfish. We're all selfish. But Jesus isn't selfish. And he lives for the glory of the Father and the good of the church. He gave not just a little bit, he gave everything. You see, when Adam was here and Eve was created, Adam had to give part of his side to have Eve created. God opened it up and said, I'm going to take a rib out of here. Jesus, he gave everything. His side was opened up because it was pierced for your sins. He gave everything. He didn't give just a little bit. He didn't give some things. He wasn't uh, kind of adequate. He gave everything. You want to know what someone loves? Follow their money trail. Follow their time trail. Follow their energy trail. Every one of us has them. You, you say, um, well, I love my wife and kids. So if you pull up in that person's driveway and you see that they got two really nice SUVs and they got, they got a camper and they got... Um, toys they got all kinds of things out in their garage and you're like wow you've obviously spent a chunk of change on these things and then you go inside and kids and mom are wearing rags you don't love your wife and kids you love yourself you you spend money on what you love someone says i love jesus have you ever given any money to Jesus as an offering. Well, I've just got so many student loans. I've got so much debt. It's just really hard. I, I was listening to this one Christian um, finance guy, and he was saying, once you get done with your debt, then you can start giving to God. And so I'm just going to kind of wait until I'm out of debt. Oh, really? Um, what kind of debt do you have? Well, I just have a 30-year mortgage. You're like, a 30-year mortgage? You're, you're already 47? Like, <laughs> you're never going to give ever if you have to get out of debt. But you're in debt because you love those things more than you love Jesus. What do you do with your energy? What do you do with your time? This is why so many of us are bitter towards our jobs. If you work a job that you don't love, you're angry because you're giving all of your time to something that you don't love. And it just eats at your soul, doesn't it? This is why people get out of jobs. They make quick decisions to move to another city, to to apply for something that they don't even really want, but it's just better in their mind at least than what they currently have. You want to know what Jesus loves? What did Jesus give his time and his energy to? He loves loves God. He loves the glory of God. He loves you. He loves me. He gave everything to us. Not just his time, not just his energy. He gave his life. Number four, Jesus is the sanctifier. He cleans, he washes. To sanctify means to set apart. Of course, he shows the imagery of a bride in verse 26. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The Bible, his words, we're dirty, aren't we? We're dirty people. Humans have flaws. We talk about this all the time. That's why we need Jesus. And religion often guilts us to change, but Jesus cleans us. You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. A lot of people think you gotta clean don't you want to go? I just feel like my life basis when people are opposed to even going to a church. Well, why why don't you want to go? I just feel like my lifestyle doesn't quite match it. Well you don't have any need for Jesus. If you're going to clean yourself up beforehand. Because number one, you can't ever clean yourself up fully. But number two, this is why we have Jesus. This is why his blood washes our sins away. Because we can't wash them away. Some people understand this. You know who really, really understands this? Moms understand this. Especially moms of little kids. Think about a baby. You ever seen a baby puke? It's just like, so unnatural looking. Like, I mean, just thinking, I'm not trying to gross you out, but think about, think about like a little, like three, six month old baby that is just kind of like, when you're older and you have to, and you find yourself sick, then, then there's social cues that you can give, like, excuse me, and you go into a restroom, or you shut the door. You do things, but, like, babies just, they don't even know it's coming. They just stare you in the face, and then it just comes out of their mouth. Sometimes projectile, and you just like, I had no idea this was coming. And, and then they become toddlers, and, and and they got snot, just so much snot. You're like, how does one person have some—adults don't have that amount of snot. They have so much, and it, it's just gross, it's gross. And then you got people who show up to church and you're like, wow, you're 15 minutes late. Are you everything? Okay. Yeah. We just had a blowout on the way out. And you're like, "What's You blow out your tire. No, I've got a, a two year old and I, and it went and it's on their neck. And you are just like, how did it get on their neck? And you're just like, you just learn that kids and babies, they're gross. They're beautiful, but they're, they're gross. And then you can always tell when a, a bunch of people are in a crowd, you can tell who the moms are because when one of the babies comes walking in with maybe a little little puke on the shirt, um, a little snot coming down over the mouth into the, the chin area, or they're just whatever the case, everybody's going to say, oh, that is gross, except for one person. That one person's going to maybe smile, say, oh, honey. They're going to come running, walking quickly to that baby. That's the mama. Everyone knows that's the mama. You... You gotta love those dirty little babies (laughs) to go and clean them up, and that's what it's like when the world sees each other in our sins, and we say, "How could you commit adultery? How could you say that about him? How could you?" Fill in the blank, and then you see Luke 15, and you say, "Made." The Father comes running to those who have made major mistakes. Jesus sanctifies. He cleans. You can tell that he's the one who created us because he's the one who doesn't run away from our mistakes. He comes to us saying, I can clean you. I can heal you. I can change you. Nobody else in the world loves each other like that. But Jesus does. Number five, he's the nourisher. He's the cherisher. It says in verse 29, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You ever see someone in a marriage, a spouse that's just neglected, guy or gal, who, who isn't shown love, who isn't uh, built up, and it's just sad. It shakes everything. Kids can feel it. Everyone can feel it. Because we got needs. we got daily needs. And Jesus, he knows that his church has blemishes. We've got, we got, we got issues that come from the inside. Um, we got issues that come from the outside. We've got issues, and he nourishes us daily. This is why we have the Holy Spirit. We've got a spirit that, that will um, comfort us and strengthen us and convict us and guide us. And as Jesus says in John, teach us. He cherishes us. He nourishes us. This is Jesus. Now, you guys ready to talk about husbands and wives? Because if you don't understand what Jesus has done, then you won't have the freedom and the desire to want to do this for anyone else. If we just started tonight and I said, hey, husbands, here's what you got to do. You might puff your chest up and say, "All right, I'm gonna try to do this, and I'm gonna get kind of get angry at some things, and then I'm gonna we'll try to do other things, and um, wonder what my wife needs to do, and I'm gonna make fun of her." And, and wives, you could do the same sort of thing, and we would walk out of here exhausted before we started. But when you hear that Jesus has already done these things, He's the example, He's the motivation. Then what you find is that the things God has done and your life start to overlap. And so you do what he has done and you find yourself with a motivation, with a power, his spirit that you wouldn't otherwise have. And it not only does that, but let me say this for those of you who aren't married. When you hear this, if we just stopped right now, then if you're single, regardless of whether you're going to get married or not, you can say, okay. Okay. I don't have to find a romantic kind of love in marriage. Do I desire it? Do, do I want it? Yeah, maybe, but like I, I think Jesus is enough. Maybe you've gone through um, a death in the family or divorce or some kind of brokenness that has broken your heart, and you say, I don't know how this is ever going to get cleaned up, but you say, okay, I don't even know the next steps, but I believe Jesus is enough. But if you're a husband... Or you're a wife, regardless of your situation. He says, now you get to reflect what you receive in Christ. So, what does it mean for a wife to submit and respect like Jesus? Well, here's a few verses. Verse 22, 24, 33, it says, Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, let's talk. Let's spend the rest of our time walking through some practical things and understanding of of what this really looks like in a marriage. Because if you don't know, it's easy to twist these commands. It's easy to oppress one another with these commands. And so let's walk through some things. Number one, um, well, here's, here's some things that it doesn't mean. This is what submission does not mean. Number one, that wives are less valuable. Some people say, oh, well, this means that, that uh, women are not competent. This means that women aren't able. They're not adequate. They have to have someone to tell them what to do because they're just not good enough. They're not valuable enough. They're not worthy enough. The Bible makes it very clear before we're given these roles in Genesis, before one um, two become one, that we're created in the image of God. So value it's never an issue. Competency, it's not an issue. Your value doesn't change. These are roles. This isn't about your worth. Both are equal. We're created in the image of God. Number two, submission does not mean, mean that men are in charge in general. What I mean by that is, um, some people look at this and they say, this is just a blanket statement, right? This command is a blanket statement about how women and men should view each other. This is not about gender roles. This is about marriage roles. There's a box. There's context, and it's marriage. So, for example, if you have daughters, you don't just tell them, hey, you need to know, wherever you go in life, college, work, Whatever, just know men are always in charge. It's never going to be appropriate for you to have authority over a man in the workplace. Some people think that way. You want to know why? That it, 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 you shouldn't say that outside of it just being wrong. Have you, have you ever met a man <laughs> like so? I mean, someone just just goofy. This is only specifically for marriage. So there's one person that you're called to submit to when it comes to this, and it's your husband. So um, this isn't a blanket statement for um, men ruling over women in every area of life. It's only marriage. But this is also, this, this is crucial. This is also why you should choose a good one. If this is only in reference to one person, your husband, you should choose a good one. Now, they're never going to be um, perfectly lovable or respectable or, or do everything to make you want to do those things. Sometimes they're going to be the opposite. But it really helps. When you find someone who loves Jesus, and you love Jesus, we're commanded to only marry people who love Jesus, and you've got to have that healthy relationship with Christ, both of you, before marriage. Or it's going to be really difficult for you to live this out. Number three, submission does not mean that wives can't think for themselves. Some ladies say, well, I guess this means I shouldn't have any thoughts, right? I'm I'm not smart. No, sometimes the wife is smarter than the husband. Sometimes the wife has um, better ideas than the husband. Sometimes the wife has more wisdom than the husband. You got to communicate. You got to talk to each other. Anyone who has responsibility in life, who's the head of anything, knows whether it, pastoral ministry is a good example knows that if you just get up there and you start making decisions by yourself because you think somehow you are somebody, you're going to make a bunch of bad decisions. But you talk to the people. You know that God speaks through not just one person, but lots of people. So God speaks through ladies as much as he obviously speaks through guys. And this is probably a good time to mention the verse that we didn't cover was the verse prior to verse 22. We ended with it last week. In verse 21, it says, Submit ye one to another. Talk about a bad chapter break, or a bad paragraph break, right? Before it says, Wives, submit to your husband. It tells us that we should submit to one another. Smart men, respectable men, are going to submit to their wives, and they're going to be able to talk about things. That's healthy in marriage. Number four. Submission does not mean that wives shouldn't influence husbands. What does Genesis say about wives in relation to um, husbands? It says that, that it wasn't good for a man to be alone and that Adam needs a helper. Helper doesn't mean someone just to sweep the floors. Helper means a helper, someone who can make decisions, someone who can walk and talk and do the things that husbands and wives do together. Now, it's all in context of being godly. If you try to influence your husband because you're manipulative, that's a whole different ballgame. But it's good to influence your husband for Christ. Number five, submission does not mean that wives shouldn't express thought or emotion. Some people think, well, I guess I just have to sit back, and uh, not only can I not think because I'm apparently not competent, but I can't express myself. I just have to zip my lips, and submission equals silence. Submission doesn't equal silence. Again, it's all in the context of godliness. It's all in the context of godliness. But you have thought, you have emotion. Express it. This isn't one person. This this isn't dictatorship. Some people feel like this is dictatorship. It's not dictatorship. For a man to be ahead means that he's got to take responsibility. He's going to be judged. He can't ignore this. Someone's got to step up and say, you know what? when God looks at this thing and he says, I need a point person to talk to in the garden, Adam, Eve. And he said, Adam, where are you? Someone's got to pop up and say, let me tell you what's been going on. Take responsibility because he's going to be judged for it. She you can express thought and emotion. Number six, submission does not mean that wives should ignore men's flaws, particularly with abuse. Some people say, well, i have a hard time submitting and respecting my husband because he's just he's just dumb he's just not a not a smart person in any way shape or form again this goes back to um you should pick a you should pick a good one <laughs> you should get to know them and know that they love Jesus and see who they are um but this is not submission is not an excuse for abuse some people think well, does this mean that if my husband says um That he wants to be physically intimate like 10 times a day. That I just have to do exactly what he wants to do. No, this is not an excuse for abuse. And on one hand, men have to, and women, have to make sure that they're not abusing each other, right? The, The whole idea is that you're following Jesus, right? So that's an important part. But also, Be careful in what you define as abuse. Not getting your way. Not giving in to your own selfish desires. That's not abuse. That's probably a healthy thing. Uh, We live in a culture that wants to cry foul on everything. And we're in a culture that um, says, well, you abused me. You physically abused me. You abused me when it was really just a bad decision that you regret (laughs) in some cases. Mm, That's not abuse. There's abuse. It's happening all the time, all over the world. But just recognize um, we've watered down abuse. But don't ignore their flaws. Be a godly influence. Um, Love them. Encourage their gifts. Model godliness. What does it mean? A few things. Number one, Submission does mean that wives set the pace and pattern of respect. Let me ask you this: If you're a wife and you don't respect your husband, do you think your children will respect your husband? Probably not. If you're a wife and you disrespect your husband to his uh, in front of his coworkers, do you think his coworkers are going to have more or less respect for him? Probably not. And it puts a man in a rough position because even if they are a goofball, and I don't want to assume that we all are even though we might have a tendency. Deep, deep, deep down, men crave respect, even when they're not worthy of it. And so if you disrespect a man, then you're saying, not only am am I not going to trust you to be a capable leader of this family, I'm also not going to allow you. So there's a lot of men out there who just wipe their hands clean and say, you know what? You don't think I can do it. You don't want me to do it. Maybe I'll just live up to that reputation. That's obviously not a healthy way to handle it. But deep down in the heart of a man, they desire respect. And if everyone around them um, sees you as the wife, as the leader in respect, um, they'll take your cue. They'll follow your cue. Number two. Wives do it because God is worthy, even when the husband doesn't act like it. This is something you hear on a regular basis as well. Well, do I have to respect, do I have to submit when they're not respectable? Well, guess what? We're going to be talking about guys here in a second and loving their wives. Are you as a wife always lovable? I haven't got many amens tonight. I don't know if it's just just late, I guess. It must be it. This is this is remember. This is ultimately not about how the other person responds, not how capable, not how lovable, not how respectable the other person. If it was, we would never obey the commands. It's never going to be convenient. It's never gonna. It's never going to match up perfectly. Where you walk up and you say, you know what? I really, really, really feel like submitting right now um, to you as the head because you're just you just got a track record of amazingness and you got no flaws. Like that's just not going to happen. You're going to have to realize there's lots of times where you say, okay, right now I don't feel like it. Right now I don't feel like they deserve it. But I recognize I don't deserve love. And Jesus loves us when we're unlovable. And he gives us value when we were, well, worthless in our sin. Number three, submission does mean that we reflect the Trinity. Philippians 2, again, Jesus humbled himself Ultimately, for you to submit to your husband, you can have a thousand excuses. A thousand excuses why you shouldn't. Why you can't. Why it's hard. It's going to take humility. It's going to take humility. Everything's situational in our lives, but sometimes we've got to realize commands aren't. In many cases, commands aren't. And when you submit, you're saying... I'm doing this because the Father submitted to the Spirit and the Spirit to the Son and the Son to the Father and they submit one to another. Now, they are perfectly respectable, perfectly worthy because God is God, but I'm going to reflect God even when it's not easy. All right, let's spend the last few minutes talking about guys. This is fun. I knew you guys were waiting for this one all week. What does it mean for a husband to love and to lead like Jesus? Well, here's a few verses. 25, 28, and 33, husbands, love your wife. Six times it says, love, 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 love through these 11 verses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Verse 33, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. So, last slide, here's what it means. Obviously, this doesn't entail everything, but for the time we got and from the passage we're preaching from, here's some things we can pull. To love and to lead like Jesus for a husband means, number one, you take responsibility. Again, Jesus is the head of the church, and it says that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, this is showing, and if you go back to uh, 1 Corinthians, and you, hear, you read about things like head coverings, and you're like, what in the world? Women shouldn't cut their hair, and they should wear some head coverings. You're wondering why all this is happening. We say, oh, it's just a cultural thing. Remember, it's pointing, and Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, it points to the created order. It, cre- it points to a beautiful theological truth that if you don't know the gospel or understand the gospel or receive the gospel, then you just won't want to have anything to do with. You'll only find beauty in it when you realize it reflects, reflects the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus created us. Jesus submits to the Father. He created us. All things were created for him, by him, through him. And then from man was taken woman. And so this train of submission shows this beautiful picture. Ultimately, when we submit to each other, that Jesus submitted to the Father. But you've got to take responsibility. Sometimes, this, sometimes what you find with men is they spend most of their time debating with their spouse or in their own heart whether they're really the head or not. Well, am I really in charge of this house? Well, am I really the one who can make some decisions around here? Well, am I the head or not? It's not for debate. You can't win it. You can't earn it. It's a closed case. The Bible says, you are held accountable Again, it's not a dictatorship, but it's someone who's saying, I'm going to take responsibility for this marriage. So I can't, I can't just ignore it. I can't pre- pretend it's not there. We've got a whole culture of guys who pretend like this isn't there. But the Bible says, this is how it is. It's not for debate. So the bigger question is, am I a good head? Am I loving like Jesus? Am I taking responsibility? That's the question you should be asking yourself. Am I taking responsibility spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially for my family? When people look at your family, do they look at you as the spiritual leader? Do they look at your spouse or do they look at your kids? I love it when ladies are great spiritual leaders, when kids are great spiritual leaders. But dudes, you're going to be held accountable. That's just not my personality. I'm just not very good at it. Nobody asked. Nobody asked. Number 2. To love and lead like Jesus means that you got to be humble. Meaning you're not the highest authority. The word of God is what it says cleans and sanctifies and washes. You got to submit to Jesus. There's a pride in a man that says, oh, we're hearing about these roles and each one shows the gospel and they're beautiful, but it kind of feels like mine's just a smidgen better. It kind of feels like it's better to be the head than the one that's got to submit. Well, Number one, remember, you got to submit too. <laughs> one to another, but you got to submit not just to your spouse. you got to submit to Jesus. Jesus is in charge. you got to lay down your pride. Number three, to love and to lead like Jesus means that you're sacrificing. Again, it says that he gave everything. He gave all. You don't get a mope. You don't get to sit around. you got to check your heart here. Because some of us, we recognize this and we think, okay, that sounds like the primary. Like, let's just cut to the chase. What does it mean to love like Jesus? I've got to sacrifice. I've got to give of myself. But then you look at your daily life. Are you really giving of yourself? Some of us, um, we need to give up some hobbies. Some of us, we need to go to bed exhausted. Well, I work so hard during the day. When I come home, I just want to relax. Does your spouse get to relax? Matter of fact, if your spouse stays at home with kids, then they continue their job all the time. Well, I just, I just need a little time to, to relax. Did you drive to work? Yeah, it was only like five blocks away. Well, you got a five block break. That's more than what your spouse got. Quit making excuses for why you won't Sacrifice you got to sacrifice not only hobbies, not only time, but you've got to sacrifice dreams. Some people will drive their family into the ground because as men they say, well, I had goals, I had dreams. You understand, I, I talk about this in premarital counseling every time. When two become one, that means it's not two lives becoming one life. It's one new life. 'Cause if you think this is two lives becoming one, you will try to selfishly cram all of your preferences into this new life. Well, I just hope we do things this way. I just hope that, that we can keep this part and I wanna keep my stuff and I wanna and you will constantly be let down because there's only room for half of your life in this new life. And Jesus saying that's not what two becoming one means. It means you give up everything and you start over brand new. You both are gonna follow me together and it's gonna look completely different. You gotta give up. I remember one time in, in premarital counseling, um Um, A couple came in and had a blended family, had a lot of stuff going on, and the guy had a really good job. He didn't have a college education, and he got basically his dream job, and he made a lot of money. But it meant that he had to work like 60 to 70 hours a week. And it was obvious as we were talking that this was affecting the people around him. Guy had kids got a wife and they were talking about how they can't spend time together and that was just the way it was. And they were young and they're setting up for 30, 40, 50 years of marriage. And I said, has it ever occurred to you that maybe you should quit your job and just get a job that maybe pays less but allows you to go home at night? It got tense. We had that conversation several times. You got to lay down your dreams. Number four, you are protecting. Jesus is the protector of the church, he's the protector of his bride, right? Now, we love this as dudes in the macho-ness of our own hearts. We think, yeah, I can protect. At least I got this one down. This is one of these six things that I don't have to think about after this because like, oh, I feel pretty good. I, mean, I haven't been to the gym in a long time, but I'm just going to assume if anything ever happened, I can protect my wife, right? Um, Jesus doesn't just protect us physically, does he? How does he protect us? He protects us because he, he defeated death and the devil's greatest tool was taken away from him on the cross. And yet the devil still pounds, pounds, pounds on the hearts and the minds of believers. He protects our thoughts, right? We're to take our thoughts captive and to make them obedient to Christ. Why? Because Christ protects us. He protects our hearts. We're to guard our hearts. Why? Because the enemy wants to hurt them. Do you protect your wife emotionally? Spiritually, you say, "Well, I just don't understand a lot of the emotions and a lot of things they go through." Nobody asked. If you don't understand, you can learn. Learn about your spouse. Grow with your spouse. Walk through. Not don't just be stable when they're unstable. Walk through their emotions. Find out where they're coming from, empathize, jump in to their life emotionally, spiritually. Do you lead them spiritually? Do you protect them spiritually? Do you pray over your spouse? Do you recognize that the enemy is wanting to rip up their mind and their thoughts all day long, to beat down their heart all day long? It's not just, well, I'm uh, struggling with kids or I'm struggling at work or I'm struggling with whatever they might be going through. It's spiritual warfare. And as the husband, you are the one who's called to step up. If you took away what you do spiritually to protect your family for the next seven days, would anything change? You got to protect. Number five, you got to prepare. You are preparing. Now, we got this imagery um, in these verses about this bride, right? That there were preparing this bride. That the church is the bride of Christ. Dudes don't like hearing that we're a bride. It's collective. It's not just one of us, right? Um, ladies, here, oh, we're the bride of Christ. That's great imagery. I can understand that. And dudes are like, eh, I don't feel like a female, so if this is just awkward, why would Jesus call me a bride? It's not talking about any one dude. It's talking about all of the church together. So don't freak out about it. Now, we're also called soldiers and other things. So if you if you really need some encouragement, there's there's other imagery. But think about. Think about a bride. Think about, I, I got a wedding here in a couple of days on Saturday. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, man, I stand up there and I kind of twiddle my thumbs for a while as I wait for all the music and stuff to start. And um, and, and then uh, the dude's going to be super nervous. They always are. He's going to be probably standing over to my left. And, um, and then the, the folks are going to walk through the bridal party stuff. And then the bride is going to come. And when she walks in, I'm just going to smile because it's pretty, it is, nothing changes for me. But I'm going to see that everyone in this room that know her, and, and especially that dude who's about to marry her, is going to light up. They're going to be enamored. They're going to say, wow, look how beautiful she is. And and, and man, he's going to just, he's, he, some of them just melt. Some of them just sit in that moment. They don't know what to do. They're super scared. They're, they're, they're enamored. There are all kinds of things. And then there's going to be the giving of the bride. And that man's going to receive his bride. They're going to make a covenant. Later, they're going to have consummation. They're going to walk through this process where he sees the beauty of his bride. You know, in Revelation 19, it says that Jesus is preparing a wedding feast. You and I are going to be... Sitting at that wedding as the bride of Christ. And it says that we are to be protected. Jesus protects us, our blemishes, our wrinkles. And when you're, as a husband, looking at your wife, and you think about her on her wedding day, regardless of when you got married and you know how beautiful she was, spiritually, you are to protect her, to preserve her, to prepare your family for the day that you see Jesus. Forget which one of you goes first. Forget how it happens. You're going you're gonna to be at that table in Revelation 19, thinking, man, did we walk in such a way that reflects the beauty that Christ wants for his bride. All right now is the prep. Are you preparing for that? And last but not least. Number six. You are uniting. It says nobody hates his own body. Right? And then he quoted Genesis 2. two become one. There's going to be conflict. Right? But we're, this, is, this is about you and your spouse becoming one. There will be. There will always be opportunity for division. Some homes are incredibly divided. You can feel it. You can sense it emotionally. There's a tenseness. Kids know it. They know mom and dad don't talk sometimes. They know mom and dad go their own ways. They know the silence is deafening. Some of you have those situations. Some of you are familiar with those situations. There's going to be a million opportunities for you to go your own way. When you as a man realize this is what it looks to love and to lead like Jesus means I can't abandon, I can't ignore issues that I've got to unite us. I've got to humble myself. I've got to make sure when there's conflict that I step up. You can take a minute to breathe, but you better get in there. You better take care of your spouse because you're the one who's going to be held accountable for it. You fight for unity. That's what it all leads to, right? In heaven, one day, we're going to be with Christ. We're going to be unified in the fullest extent. Right now, we are spiritually. One day, he's coming back. We will be physically, and ultimately, in heaven, we will be eternally. We're going to be unified. And there's not going to be any tears. There's not going to be any pain, because we won't ever be separated again. Thank God that when we were separated in our sin, Jesus came down to bridge the gap between us and the Father. That we might have him. Not just now. Not just at the end of this life say, I got him for 50 years. We stayed together unified. We all know that couple. want to be that couple. No, but for 2,000 years and for maybe thousands more, Jesus has been able to look at the Father and say, you gave him to me and I didn't lose one of them and they are in me, and we are unified. We're all imitating something. As you leave here, think about these things. Think about not only what God calls you to do, challenges you to do, commands you to do, but what Christ has first done for us. Some of us imitate our moms, and our houses look like it both good and bad. Some of us imitate our dads. Some of us imitate our friends, our coworkers. Some of us imitate our culture or our upbringing. We all imitate something. Do you imitate Jesus? That's your identity in Christ. We're imitators. Let me pray for you.